the whole book of Revelation, indeed the whole Bible, and all of redemptive history has been anticipating the point in time we will cover in our text today. It is the second coming of Christ. I've titled the message, really simply, The Return of King Jesus. The Return of King Jesus. And the way I've structured the sermon is is really in two stages. Uh, Much like a story with a plot line that you see in a movie or read in a book, the Bible has this grand story arc. And every good story arc has a conflict and it has a point of resolution. And I want to cover the resolution that's here in the second coming, but first I would like to cover the conflict that the book of Revelation has presented to us. There is a conflict that John has seen before this point. And so, before I focus on our passage, what I want to do is is sort of highlight um, sort of a survey of what's been happening in Revelation as John's been looking at these visions. And I'm just going to give a, a very broad summary. Because before you look at a resolution, you should know what's being resolved. So let's look really quickly, before I do that, at the opening of the verse in our passage. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. I just want to look at the first five words that John writes. Look at what John says. Then I saw heaven opened. I want to pause there, and it's going to be a a little lengthy pause. Because I want us to to look at what John has been seeing up until this point. He says he saw heaven opened. But it's important to note, what was he seeing before this? For the last several chapters, all the way back to chapter 6, John has seen many visions and symbols within the book. And he's looked at heaven more than once. The phrase that he saw, heaven opened, is it's really an epic turning point in the book. It's the transition from conflict to resolution. And it assumes that you know what's been happening in the book. In the earlier chapters of the book, in chapters 4 and 5, that's the most remarkable heavenly vision that John saw. If we remember that when he looked into heaven, what he saw was Jesus pictured as the Lamb who had been slain, who receives from the Father a scroll, which was his title deed to the earth. And really, what we talked about at that point, months back, was that what Jesus was taking from the Father at his ascension was the course of human history in his control. Jesus has all authority and all power over the course of history. And not just in the last days, but through the last 2,000 years of church history. Jesus is directing every point to its glorious end. And everything in Revelation, since the time that He takes the scroll, everything has been happening because Jesus the Lamb is directing it. And in my last sermon, a little over a month ago, we surveyed a running theme throughout the book as Jesus starts breaking off the seals to this title deed to the earth. And it is the unleashing of the wrath 
of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. Because when Jesus took the title deed to the earth from the Father, He also assumed the Father's wrath. Indeed, it is His own wrath. And it's displayed at various points throughout the book, and we sort of unpacked what that means. It is the loosening of common grace from the earth. Every divine restraint that God has placed on the creation to keep it together in His patience is starting to become loosened as He prepares to send His Son a second time. Restraints in nature are loosened as God appoints cataclysmic wrath on the earth. Restraints that He has in governments to keep the world restrained or becoming loosened as there's increased conquest and war and bloodshed. Restraints of human sin are loosened as man acts in more depraved ways than he ever has before because man is totally depraved. And he's given over to that. And we looked at how the wrath of the Lamb is a major theme in this book. If you teach through Revelation and don't cover the wrath of the Lamb, something big got missed. But what we didn't delve into, not too far last time, is another running theme throughout chapters 6-18, through and that is the conflict that is happening on the earth. There's a conflict that is revealed in Revelation. And it is a conflict between two kingdoms. A conflict between two kingdoms. There have always been two rival kingdoms in redemptive history. And now in Revelation, these two kingdoms are brought into sharper focus. That's what's happening in Revelation. There is the kingdom of God, which when the veil is lifted, is shown to be the kingdom of the Lamb. And there is the kingdom of man, which when the veil is lifted in this book, is shown to be the kingdom of Satan. And we don't have time to look at every passage about this in chapters 6-18, through but what I wanted to do is sort of lay out this conflict and how it takes shape in these two kingdoms. First, I want to remind us that Revelation is is not a pessimistic book. It's not a pessimistic book for God's people. It's a very optimistic book about the kingdom of God. And it's not just the triumph of God's kingdom up until the very last days. It is the triumph of God's kingdom even in the last days. I want to propose to us, based on the book's own content, that the conflict between these two kingdoms in Revelation is not the story of God's kingdom falling apart under the world system. And Jesus just has to come and save this almost broken kingdom and put it back together. That's not the theme of the book. It's sad that it often gets presented that way. Like it's horrible times for God's kingdom. It's as bleak as it's going to be. We should be afraid. Rather, I propose that's an erroneous view of the end times. I propose that the book reveals the kingdom of God as a triumphant 
advancing kingdom that Jesus simply consummates. And it is the kingdom of Satan that is falling apart. The kingdom of Satan is at its last-ditch effort to survive. It's a whole different view of the two kingdoms. And we often miss it because honestly, I think we have earthly eyes and we view advancement in earthly terms and we miss the subversive nature of how Christ plans to advance His kingdom. His kingdom advances more greatly even through His saints being persecuted and even martyred. That's not the way earthly kingdoms advance. That's how Christ's kingdom advances. And Satan's kingdom is seen as crumbling, even though his agents seem most powerful and loud in their boasting. We saw last time at the end of chapter 6 that there's a lingering question as the wrath of the Lamb is being unleashed on the earth. And I wanted to take us back there. Keep your finger in chapter 19. Rather than just summarize it, I thought I'd actually look at an example of this kingdom of God in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. This is as Jesus is peeling the seals off the scroll. I want to read verses 15 through 17 of chapter 6. Look at what John writes back then. He writes, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's the lingering question. Who can stand? That last question sits there for the reader to contemplate. Who can stand? And the chapter ends with that question, but as we know, as what often happens with uninspired chapter breaks, is we often lose the flow of where a text is going. That question does not go unanswered. In fact, chapter 7 begins to answer the question, as the world is in disarray and even kings and rulers cannot stand, who will stand in this great kingdom conflict? Chapter 7 begins to answer that question. I will just read the first few verses of how God is advancing His kingdom to stand. Verse 1, John continues, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Who can stand in the days of God's wrath? The ones whom the Lord protects. The ones whom the Lord seals. The ones who belong to the Lamb. And we see in these verses a people group that every student of Scripture should find as no surprise in the coming of the last days. It is a large-scale remnant from the tribes of Israel. As the Lamb is breaking His seals and directing history to its consummation, He is bringing every promise and every covenant to its conclusion. And in doing this, He will tie one of the greatest loose ends in the whole Scripture narrative, which is the people of Israel. Up until this point, He has preserved ethnic Israel, but as a hardened group. Romans 11 and other New Testament passages make clear that there's a hardening in the hearts of ethnic Jews until the time that the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. And Scripture makes clear that at some point, there is a a timing coming when Jesus will replace their hearts of stone and give them hearts for Him. And the veils of their eyes will be lifted and they'll see their Messiah and embrace Him. I think that's what's happening in this passage. Now there are some theologians who, who look at this passage and merely interpret it as symbolic language of, of all Christians. There are some who advocate for that. I find that difficult to believe, mainly because of the precision that is provided in the language. He goes on to list each tribe of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from Reuben and Gad and Asher and on and on. I think what we're seeing here is that as God is finishing the last stones in His kingdom, He's remembering the people He covenanted with at first who pierced His Son and they're coming to repentance. Now that's not all that's happening. He goes on and He continues and the vision sort of expands to the global aim of of redemption. Verse 9 continues and says that there's a great multitude of saints that He sees in heaven. A remnant from every nation and tribe and people and language. I mean, it's really a remarkable thing that John sees. I want you to remember that John's been exiled. That he's being persecuted as a preacher of the Word in a hostile Roman Empire. That the churches he's writing to in this epistle are suffering. And John gets to see, in the end, the array of all the remnants of peoples that the Lamb has purchased with His blood. From all the nations and even from the stock of Israel. And we don't have time to expand on the multi-layered significance of His covenant plan, which has debates in it anyway. I want to highlight here, though, the revival, and the completion of the remnants that God has planned. God has big, glorious, redemptive things He is doing in the last days. Even until the end. And I mention this because we tend to think of Revelation and the events of the end times 
as being mainly dark and gloomy. But God would have us know from these visions that He is saving, really, His best for last. Imagine the encouragement this must have brought them. The encouragement it should bring every missionary, every Christian who's in the Great Commission. Jesus is expanding His kingdom and will not lose a remnant. And throughout the book, if you continue reading on your own time, you will see in these chapters, glimpse after glimpse, in the midst of the wrath, in the midst of the turmoil, there are continual glimpses of the saints. And they're always seen as set apart from the world system around them. They're seen as holy. They're called blameless. They're called persevering. They're enduring. They're faithful unto death. They're not all living. There is persecution. It gets bad. But they're not going with the trends and the the world system around them. No, it says actually in Revelation 14, verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's a good place for you and I to be. We have leaders and world systems that want to direct us in all their directions and We need to follow the Lamb where He goes. And it will often be, most of the time, against the culture. God is not done gathering His elect at this point in history. This is the kingdom of Christ, and it is being built, and it is advancing. That was a specific passage. I don't have time to give specific passages for Satan's kingdom but I'll sum it up by stating sort of what's happening with Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is revealed throughout Revelation to also be in sharp contrast to the people of God. As the restraint, again, of God's common grace is being loosened, there is this great expression of depravity which is seen in greater contrast to godliness in all of Scripture. Some of the worst behaviors on the part of man are put on display. Like a a tea bag in, in hot water, everything in depravity is just coming out. Even in the midst of suffering, there are portions where they're experiencing like boils and burns from the wrath of the Lamb, and it says they curse God and will not repent of their deeds. That's total depravity. And as history rushes to its climax in Revelation, man is seen to be increasing in lawlessness and even the semblance of human decency that keeps societies running seems to diminish as they are merciless to the saints and merciless to those who preach morality, who preach God's law, who preach the Gospel. And they're unwilling to hear the truth of God. The book shows witnesses that God raises and they're unwilling to even hear them. They celebrate at their death. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that love of many will grow cold. And even those who are rulers, who are supposed to keep the nations in order, are seen to be joining together in a conspiracy against Christ and His people. As Psalm 2 foretells, 
and God's restraint in keeping the nations distinct from each other and in check against each other seems to also be lifting since the time He put it in place at the Tower of Babel. You remember in chapter 11 that God placed a restraint in making the nations dispersed through the earth. And they couldn't understand one another. And it seems that now that restraint is being loosened as peoples are going back to where they did back then. They are uniting in defiance against God. You see everything in history just coming back full circle and even worse. And as you read the book, they're given the name that really is their root name in Babel. They're called Babylon. Babylon. There's even a, a word picture in chapter 18 that resembles Babel. It says that their sins stacked to heaven. This is Babylon. Humanity in its full fruition of depravity. The kingdom of man. And yet, as you read the book and you get to chapters 12 and 13 and onward, you begin to see the veil lifted even further. That it's not merely the kingdom of man, as depraved as he is. There's more going on. As the triune God has been at work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to build His kingdom on the earth, there appears, as it were, an unholy trinity at work in the earth. It is revealed that behind the scenes there is Satan, who is pictured as a dragon, one who is called the beast, and one who is called the false prophet. And I'm not going to unpack what different people have said about those. It seems clear, though, that Satan more than ever is permitted to make this great system set against God's kingdom. You have two opposing groups. The kingdom of God and you have the kingdom of Satan. And throughout the book, they are clashing. There's many details. I, I want to note two things about these kingdoms and then jump into our text, which isn't going to take too much time, I assure you. Two things about these kingdoms to keep in mind. One about the Lord's kingdom. I want to note that if you read Revelation on your own time, you will see that the Lord's kingdom does not advance through vengeance. It doesn't advance through vengeance. Uh, read through the book and you'll see that the saints that the Lord raises up do not use the weapons of this world. They don't fight back their enemies. They don't utilize human governments to try to get their agendas in order. They're actually seen as patiently enduring and leaving vengeance to God. Revelation 14 says they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And that's really the story of Christ's followers in every age. We overcome, we conquer by preaching the Gospel, by enduring, and by leaving vengeance to God. Over and over, age after age, we preach, we endure, we leave vengeance to God. We preach, we endure, we leave vengeance to God. And it's as though history is waiting for the moment when he has brought his last saints to persevere, and guess what's coming? The vengeance of God. And so throughout the book, you see this theme. They're enduring, they're patient, because it is the Lord, the Lamb, who will do the work. The second thing I want to point out concerns the kingdom of Satan, which I already highlighted. 
And it's that the kingdom of Satan in this book is the one that is on defense. The kingdom of Satan is the one that is on defense. I've quoted Matthew 16 before. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. And I mentioned last time that Revelation contains really Satan's last ditch effort. I, I compared it to like a villain in a story who at first has all this composure and it doesn't seem, it seems like he's unstoppable. But as the protagonist keeps overcoming and overcoming and finally they're at a head-to-head combat, you see the villain just unleashing all powers and all forces that he has. And you don't think to yourself, oh, he's so powerful. Maybe you kind of do, but really what you're seeing is desperation. Like, I've given all my littlest things and nothing is deterring. I'm just going to give everything. It's, a, it's desperation. It's a last-ditch effort to win. And that's what Satan is doing as God gives him permission to use all his forces of depravity. He's on defense. Revelation later gives a comment that as he gathers his forces, he knows his time is short. Like he's scrambling. And yes, he will be seen at his most powerful, but one, remember that God gives him that power. He's still on God's leash. God's just loosening the leash and going, okay, you can go further. He's still under God. But number two, we have to remember that... um, We have to remember what Satan has not been able to do. Yes, he might be powerful. He might use all of his forces, but he has not been able to stop the advance of the gospel into all the nations. He's not been able to stop the true saints from persevering. He's not been able to stop every promise and covenant from being fulfilled. Really, Satan, from a kingdom standpoint, is the one in retreat, and Satan's kingdom is in demise. God's kingdom is advancing. And we have further proof of this in our passage because it is not Satan who is storming into heaven to engage with Christ in battle. That's what advancement would look like. No, Satan is not going on Jesus' turf. Rather, it is Christ descending to earth. And Satan and all his earthly and spiritual forces, they're the ones looking up, gathered together, just getting ready, embracing themselves in defense. And that's where we're at in chapter 19. This doesn't take too long to go through. It's, I, I wanted to spend the majority just kind of setting this up so that we would get the magnitude of Jesus' return. That's the conflict of the book. How does it get resolved? What is our blessed hope? Let's just jump in. Because Jesus makes an appearance after this big conflict that's set up throughout Multiple chapters. I know that was a long pause. We're going to move more rapidly. There are four aspects of Christ's return that I want to point out in succession. There's multiple ways people have broken this up. I counted four different aspects, and I even, it took me time, but I even made them start with the same letter. That's always a plus. Four things about Christ's return. We'll see here the revelation of Jesus. The regiments of Jesus, the retribution of Jesus, and lastly, the reign of Jesus. 
the revelation of Jesus, the regiments of Jesus, the retribution of Jesus, and the reign of Jesus. And each point gets shorter. Let's move through these and look at the glorious hope of history. Look at verses 11 through 13. Let's start with the revelation of Jesus. Look at what he says. Now John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This again is the grand climax that Revelation and the whole Bible has been anticipating. It's the revelation of all revelation. It's the literal, physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, note the beginning statement. Then I saw heaven opened. I hope that has greater epicness when you consider what's been happening. John has seen heaven open before once in this book. And when, he op- when it opened in chapter 4, you remember that John was the one who entered in. He saw a door in heaven. He goes through and he sees the throne room scene. But now something different is happening. John says, I saw heaven opened, but it's open for a different reason. Heaven is open not so John can go in. Heaven is open this time so that Jesus can come out. The book has taken a twist. The first time Jesus entered this world, He entered into his, in His body in, as an infant in the womb, born in a manger, in total humility. Unrecognized. Not many even were there present at His birth. But here it will be public. This second time Jesus enters the world, it is not as an infant. It is as a conqueror. It is in total exaltation, even physically. And He's given many symbols to sort of highlight the grandeur of this coming. And I want to look at those symbols just one after the other. The first thing that catches John's eye in these symbols is what he is writing John's eye is captivated by a white horse. A white horse. Now this too is in contrast to the humility that Jesus had on the earth. You remember on the earth, Jesus was seen riding a donkey. And He was riding humbly and lowly. Now He is riding triumphantly on a noble steed. The noblest animal for a rider to have in warfare. A white horse was typical in Roman uh, processions. Oftentimes, a, a general would go to battle and they would come back to this great fanfare, this great glorious procession, riding their horse. And it's important to note in Revelation, I'll just kind of point out that, that it is full of pictures and that there are pictures that the audience at the time would recognize in their history and also throughout the Old Testament. I don't think we're literally supposed to look at every component and see a literal detail. Rather, what is it communicating to us? 
I mean, I've seen people speculate weird stuff from this, like, are there glorified horses in heaven in the sky, and what's that going to be like? And I, just not the point. No, what, what matters is what this horse represents. It's not that he's literally going to emerge on a horse. I mean, he could. But I think the picture here is he is coming in victory. And he's leading armies. And notice, armies would be led back from battle. And they would be celebrated in a procession. In the same way, the imagery here for Christ is as though the victory is already won. Even what he's wearing shows that battle has already been done. All that's left is consummation. Jesus is described as a man who goes out in righteousness and makes war. In addition to being a symbol of conquest, others have also seen the horse uh, being the color white, perhaps to symbolize purity, as often is the case in Scripture. White is often the color of purity and spotlessness, which would also be fitting for Christ. That's a possible addition there. But you're supposed to see this contrast to the Jesus who once was on the earth before. In the Gospels, He rode an unclean donkey as He Himself was going toward the cross to bear our sins. But now He rides in majestic purity. He will not bear our sins this time. He will punish sin. And He's not going to bear wrath as a substitute, but He is going to be the one executing wrath as the judge. And he is called faithful and true. I think there's not a more fitting description for Christ. There's not much symbolism to unpack there. I think it's just a plain statement. He's faithful and true. Everything Jesus has said about coming back is going to happen. Everyone will see, whether his enemies or his people, with greater clarity than ever before, that he is faithful to all his promises. And everything he ever spoke is true. Verse 12 continues with imagery that we're meant to remember from the first chapter in the book. And that's that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Look at his eyes. His eyes are a flame of fire. Of fire. Back in chapter 1 and the opening chapters that followed it, when Jesus is addressing the churches, these had special significance as Jesus, you remember, is looking into the life of the churches and it's to show that nothing escaped his notice. That Jesus looks with perfect precision and scrutiny to every sin and defect in every church. And he knows exactly what to commend and exactly what to rebuke. And it was a sobering reality to think that Jesus even chastises and judges his church. But look at the shift that's happening here. I mean, consider how sobering this is for chapter 19. These eyes which burned intently as he looked into the life of his beloved churches... These fiery eyes are now looking upon a wicked, lawless world that has nothing to commend in it. No redeeming qualities. They have done nothing but defy Him and persecute His people. And the picture here is that this Jesus who is returning in glory, 
Just as he does not miss one sin or defect in his churches, he has perfect precision and penetration into the lives of every sinner on the earth. From the very highest ruler to the lowliest of the low. The small and the great. It's a major sobering shift happening in the book. It was solemn to consider his fiery gaze to judge sin in his church, but now his fiery gaze is turning to those who are his enemies. 1 Peter 4.17 puts it this way, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? It's supposed to make us go, oh. He is coming to judge. What John's audience was supposed to walk away with and what we're, we're supposed to walk away with here is that the evil we see in this world is not going unnoticed from the king. Every single injustice, every bit of persecution, every malignment of his people, everything is being accounted for. This is why we don't leave vengeance to ourselves. We can't even do half the job. Jesus is counting the sins and tallying them up, tallying them up, and his wrath is in perfect precision. Right now, we are living in the days of his incredible patience and long suffering, but his patience is not slackness. Paul Washer, I think, put it this way in a visual symbol. It's it's as though he's holding back the wrath of God with one hand and and stretching out his hand, inviting sinners to repent with the other. But a day is coming when both hands come down. And there will be no more offer, and there will be only the consummation of his wrath. And the mighty rulers of this world who are loud and who speak of God's people and speak of Christ as weak, as a joke, the ones who spit in His face and have disregarded the reality of His Lordship, these are the ones who are going to come face to face with the warrior king. Jesus goes, I'm sorry, John goes further than merely describing Him as a conqueror and a judge. Look at what He says next. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I touched on this back in chapter 5, months and months ago, when he takes the scroll about the sovereignty of Christ. But I think it's interesting here that he speaks of it as being multiple diadems. The, the imagery that's supposed to be communicated here is no one on earth has the slightest idea how sovereign this Christ is. When he assumed that scroll from the Father, that authority was so comprehensive, we have no idea. We thought we knew the extent that Jesus had in directing history's script up until this moment. We thought we felt the gravity of such sovereignty But on this day, His sovereignty will be displayed in greater manifestation than could ever been conceived. Many diadems, John says. And the phrase next to it, of course, has brought a lot of inquiry over the centuries. And that's the mystery of His name. 
says he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. This is also meant to communicate uh, that there is a, a mystery to how great and majestic Christ's character is. As a name is connected to character, Christ's character is, is going to be revealed and John and his vision can't even capture it. It's so profound, so incomprehensible. And it's a good detail for John to include. Because I think all of us tend to put Jesus in a box and we tend to like a familiar Jesus. The Jesus in the nativity, in the manger. The, the Jesus who was on this earth that we relate to as we think of Him. But John says, look, I saw the vision. I couldn't even take it all in. He's so glorious. I think I remember one time John MacArthur said that he was asked, that he frequently gets asked, What's, what do you think that name is? And He always just responds and goes, you're going to have to ask Jesus. No one knows but him. <laughs> it says that. <laughs> Not even John MacArthur knows. No one knows. Don't ask after the service. <laughs> the imagery continues with verse 13. <clears throat> Look at what he's wearing. This is the last part of his revelation. It says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now this detail of his robe actually has great meaning that we might miss at first. It's important to note about the robe that it's splattered with blood before he's even waging the battle. It's already covered with blood. And there's different ways people have looked at this. So I'm not going to speak dogmatically. But it's interesting to think that this king is wearing a garment as though he's been to battle before. That's kind of the indication that's being communicated. This isn't the first time this warrior king has gone to battle. He's gone to battle many times throughout Scripture. If you think about the, the many Christophanies of the Old Testament leading saints like Joshua and other armies, you could look at it that way. In a more ultimate sense, I think any Christian, what comes to mind is the central battle in redemptive history that is likely to be in view here with blood, and it is that Jesus has gone to battle before with Satan and sin and death at the cross. When He vanquished His enemies. And there's also a, a kind of a multi-ways to look at this. There's the blood of His enemies as He conquered them, but there's also His own blood that He shed. It could be communicating both or either one. Also remember that He's been vanquishing His enemies with His wrath throughout this tribulation period. So the idea is, Jesus is a, a, the warrior king, and His victory is already won. He's done the battle. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's conquered the world. This warrior king has been through war and has come out victorious, and now the, his blood-stained garment is ready to finish the job. And to remove all further doubt about the identity of this Savior King, He is referred to with John's title in His Gospel account. He is called the Word of God. 
the Logos. This is the one who was the Word made flesh. And now, at this moment in history, He is still the Word made flesh. He appears as God, very God, and still man, very man. And this is important to point out because I think we have a very incomplete view of Jesus. This is the same Jesus we knew before. This is the same Jesus who was in the manger. We're not dealing with a different being. This is the same Jesus who spoke with a Samaritan woman. It's the same Jesus who took children into His arms. It's the same Jesus who spoke tenderly with His disciples in the upper room. It's not that He's no longer who He was. Rather, we never knew the half of who He was. I think about like the transfiguration account where they're walking and they think they know Jesus. And he's like, James, John, Peter, come up on this hill. Summarizing. And they see this glorious view of Christ and they're mesmerized. And Peter's saying things that later, I don't know if he read the gospel accounts and went, oh, he's talking about building booths for each person he sees. It's a glorious sight. <clears throat> and then Jesus turns back. The idea is, there is always so much more to Jesus to be seen. And at this moment, Jesus is shown high and lifted up in His full glory. This is the Word of God made flesh. I'm going to move quicker through the last three features. They just kind of go in a row. Next, He speaks of His, re- his regiments. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen White and pure were following him on white horses. I'll just say a few things about this. Um, Generals often went out to conquer, and they never conquered alone. They had their armies, their regiments who went with them to battle. And sometimes I think we think of the return of Christ as, as coming sort of solo, like he's the only one who's returning, but that's not the way Scripture portrays his return. No, He comes with His glorified troops. Jesus is coming back and you and I are going to be there. It's going to be a good view. I want you to think about how remarkable and breathtaking this picture really is. Millions of saints throughout history, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Saints from the church history, the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, the Christians today, Christians in the tribulation who pass. They're going to be in this scene with their king. Other passages such as Matthew 25 also mention he's going to come with the glory of all his angels. All his angels? You know how many angels are described? Tens of thousands of angels? So let's just throw them in the company as well. It's going to be a glorious sight when Jesus returns. The entrance of Jesus into this world will be the most glorious sight the world has ever seen. Revelation 1.7 says that when He comes in the clouds, every eye will see Him. We can only speculate how that takes shape. We know that He's going to descend onto the Mount of Olives. 
It's not unreasonable to speculate that either this could be televised around the world, I'm sure it would be covered, or that God supernaturally will give insight into all people to behold this. We don't really know. We know His glory will fill the earth when He returns. They could just be seeing the glory of Christ everywhere. We don't know. But it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be a triumph for His armies. Remember that these are those who have suffered through history. These are those who were slain with a sword, who were maligned, and who suffered for His name. And they're going to be with Him by grace, undeserved, but they'll be there, will be there. And it's significant that the saints are also symbolized as riders on white horses. Because that's the important theme in the book of Revelation. It's a call to overcome. A call to conquer. And these saints who have endured persecution and been martyred by rulers, in the end, they're the ones who will appear triumphant looking down on the rulers. There's a a twist of a picture happening here. And they have reserved vengeance to their king age after age. And now is the time they will be with him as they watch him fulfill that promise. And this is the great transition to the next point as the attention is brought right back to Jesus doing the vengeance. The multitude of the saints, as glorious as they will appear, are are merely a side note that John mentions and it gets right back to Jesus in the next verse. We're going to go next to the retribution of Jesus. And we kind of covered this so it will be quick. Verse 15 The retribution of Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Now we've commented already on his vengeance and how he makes war, so I'm just going to briefly cover this. It's worth noting that in this description that the symbols are repeated from earlier in the book and also in the Old Testament. These would be very familiar to the student of Scripture. The imagery is actually some of the most severe in Scripture. First, the sword from his mouth is is mentioned earlier in the book, also symbolizing the severity of his judgment. It's it's used toward the churches at first, just like the the flaming eyes. A sword strikes down. It's, it's brutal. It's a weapon of greatest bloodshed in the Roman world. And Jesus takes it from his mouth. The rod of iron would be recognizable from Psalm 2. It symbolizes his mighty strength as he dashes nations like a person just dashes pottery to pieces. Again, just grisly language. These mighty empires, Rome and big nations, coalitions under Satan. He's going to just, one swing, and they're just going to be shattered. And the final battle isn't even back and forth. That's another thing to notice about this final battle. It's not like there's a back and forth swinging going on. Jesus just, poof, they're done. It could hardly even be considered a battle. He takes the sword from his mouth 
which carries the idea not so much of a literal sword, but that Jesus will say the word and they will fall. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 puts it this way when describing the Antichrist figure to come. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is also the picture that the church needs of the evil in this world. To Jesus, it's nothing. Satan and his forces will be shown to be the small agents that they are. I think of the scene in like the Wizard of Oz. You remember the end and the great and powerful Oz with the fire and the commanding voice is just shown to be this pitiful old man behind a curtain and he's kind of nervous and doesn't even really kind of know what he's doing. That's Satan in the end. In your own time, I recommend uh, reading the account of Isaiah 14. If you could jot it down, look it up later. It's kind of a, almost a humorous passage. Uh, Isaiah 14 refers to Israel's remnant taunting Babylon when it falls, and it kind of has an eschatological um, tie to it as well, and links it to the fall of Satan. And after describing his fall, it has this series of questions that the nations will be asking, and they're asking questions like, is this the one who shook kingdoms? Is this the one who made the earth like a desert? And it, just, it keeps going. It's, the idea is, that's him? Compared to Jesus, in contrast to Jesus. Yeah, that's Satan. And everything he does was under the sovereign direction of Jesus. Satan and all who united against Christ will fall like dominoes and be judged. And based from our passage, they will be judged fiercely. Look at what it says. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Again, this is a major connection to earlier in the book in which God the Son has been granted full control over the God the Father's wrath. And it's a, a grisly metaphor that would be recognizable to the people here. Um, In the ancient world, grapes would be stomped on and often they would make a mess and they would be squished and they would sort of squirt everywhere. This is vivid imagery that represents what Jesus is going to do to people on the earth. In your own time, you can continue reading verse 17 to the end, but it contains a picture of the armies gathered against him becoming the supper for birds. We've been invited to the supper of the Lamb. And in the end, it's revealed the supper of the Lamb is all those who oppose Him. This is Jesus. It's not the only aspect of Jesus. We're not going to thump our Bibles and only proclaim this aspect of Jesus. He is tender. He is the Lamb. But don't miss this Jesus. He will bring vengeance. Remember, it says He makes war with righteousness. No one will question this vengeance. In fact, the chapter before and the verses before show that they're praising Him for this great display of justice. Lastly, I'm going to very quickly conclude to close our time. In addition to the revelation of Jesus, the regiments of Jesus, the retribution of Jesus, there is the consummation of 
the reign of Jesus. Look at the last phrase, and we can close with this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The final sight that John sees is a banner. A banner on his robe. This banner in the ancient world would stretch across a conqueror's chest and it would dangle below his upper leg so that all would see who this was who was conquering them. It is the name that given that captures his full unmistakable authority over every person in power on the earth. And it's usually translated the way it's meant to be understood, with his kingship and lordship being capitalized and the other ones being lowercase. He is the capitalized king over all lowercase lesser kings. He is the capitalized lord over all lowercase lesser lords. And note, as we did in chapter 5, this is not a title we await to give Jesus. It's not that he has to do this, and then he will be king of kings and lord of lords. But it is a title he now has at the current time. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the sovereign ruler of the earth, and all he's doing at this coming is making it public. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, and every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. Let's give him praise. Let's pray. Father, as we close and as we continue our worship and our fellowship, we pray that you would give us a higher, grander, more majestic, more central view of Jesus in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would come soon. We pray that you would use us to hasten your coming, to preach your gospel, to implore every person to be faithful to be faithful unto death, to overcome. Lord, we look to this day. We confess how indifferent we often are. Would you give us the eyes of faith to see Jesus as he is on his throne? That, Lord, when he returns, we would not shrink back at his coming. And we pray these things giving him glory. Amen.